In those times, people would have had breakfast, and then they would have had the meal, the main meal, later on in the afternoon, and um, and that would probably have included things like um, bread and um, cheese, butter, eggs, um, along with fruits and vegetables. Um, pomegranate seeds were eaten. Um, and then there's dates, grapes, and of course there's olives as well. Kirkus, like, what is that? <laughs> it's a, they, they didn't eat a lot of meat. Actually, in that time, meat and poultry would have been too expensive to be eaten regularly. Um, ex so they only had that on special occasions. And fish would probably have been eaten more regularly, um, but definitely not every day. Um, and Jesus would probably have, when he did eat bread, he would have eaten barley bread. And when he ate with the rich, he would probably have eaten white bread, which is made of refined wheat. Not much has changed over the times with regards to bread. Of course, there was no filter coffee. Ah. <laughs> there was no Coca-Cola either, Kirk. <laughs> um, and so Jesus would probably have drunk wine, generally mixed with three parts um, water or milk. And then, of course, water was constantly drunk during those times. And so such was the diet of God incarnate. Nothing like what we eat today. Today, our dietary requirements have changed quite substantially. Um, in terms of just the season that we find ourselves in on this during this time. So what we will do in this series is we'll, we'll try and look at what we can learn about grace, what we can learn about community and mission by looking at this ordinary practice, something that we do every day of our lives, probably thrice a day. Um, and, and we will try and see what we can what we can learn from something as mundane as that. You know, we, we purchase and prepare food and meals all the time, and we don't pay a whole lot of attention um, to it. You know, we could say that eating is an expression of our dependence on God. God made us in such a way that we must eat. We have to eat. We cannot survive without it. We are rooted in a creation. And this means that every time that we do eat, we are reminded of our dependence on others outside of ourselves. Few of us eat food that we ourselves have grown and cooked. If you can think back to two weeks back when we spoke about the fruits of the Spirit and how I was struggling to get a few of the plants in my yard to produce um, f uh, a crop or a harvest. It takes a lot of work. And so even probably the more self-sufficient among us still rely on others. You see, food forces us to live in community. It forces us to share and to cooperate, and it forces us to trade. And so in all societies, I believe, there's an unspoken division of labor. 
which means that we work together to provide the food that we need. And that division of labor frees us from constant growing and harvesting ourselves and hunting and gathering so that we can develop other things like science and art and other things more so than that. Just think about a minute, what you, for a minute, what a day in your life could look like if you had to find food for yourself. What would your day look like if your food requirements relied entirely only on you? You had to grow it. You had to harvest it. You had to go out and hunt. You had to go out and gather, you know? Um, and when you th while you're thinking about that, just imagine what uh, the life of a homeless person would be like who didn't have access to meals in the way that we do. An enormous amount of time, of energy, of resources would be spent on something like that, just getting the food that we do need for daily life. So it would seem then that a humble loaf of bread expresses the mandate that God gave humanity to develop agriculture, technology, society, commerce, and culture when he said in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So apart from nourishing us, it seems that food also expresses our dependence on God. So we are sustained by God. There's this author, Tim Chester, he says, that even our rebellion against God is only possible because he holds the fabric of our universe together by his powerful word. Our shouts of defiance against God are only possible with the breath that he gives us. Now as we think about food and God and his relationship to us, I found it quite interesting as I was doing some reading that there are three ways that the New Testament completes this phrase. The Son of Man came. Now there are only three ways in the New Testament that that line is Completed, And it's, it appears in Mark chapter 10, verses 45, where it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then it says in Luke 19, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And then this is Jesus' words himself, as Luke records it in chapter 7. Jesus says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So it seems as though Jesus was into eating and drinking. 
And it seems as though Jesus was into eating and drinking, and he was into it enough that people accused him of doing it in excess. People accused him of actually being a glutton. And so as I think of that, it seems that meals appear to be a theme even in the Gospels that reflect something about Jesus himself. According to another author, he says in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's coming from a meal. A lot of eating going on there. So meals are about a lot more than simply eating and drinking, it appears. And so this ordinary event, when done with other people, offers, I think, if we look at the way Jesus ministers, opportunities for grace, opportunities for community, opportunities for mission, even salvation and even hope. Think about the number of times that you may have met with a friend to listen, to counsel, to pray, and you would have done that over a meal, even something to drink. You see, meals create opportunities, and Jesus seems to have known this in a time and in a culture where sharing a meal with someone held great and deep meaning. Even just having a drink of water with him could change your life. And so this picture of how important food and meals are to us is something that I see as a pattern, a thread that travels through Scripture. Now, when you think about it, the Bible starts off with people eating in the garden, and they are eating what they ought not to be eating. They are eating the forbidden fruit. And it ends again, the Bible ends in Revelation, with people eating again the wedding feast of the Lamb. And then there's that pivotal moment in the Bible, the cross. And even that is preceded by an intimate meal that we still remember and commemorate up until today. And so for the rest of our time together, I would like us to consider a practice that is of, I think, great significance for Jesus, but also for all of the Israelites in their history, and it's namely their feasts. Now, Jesus, being a Jew, Jesus wasn't a Christian. He was a practicing Jew. He would have celebrated these feasts as a prescribed religious observance. Now, how can we understand these feasts? I can remember when I was much younger, reading through these feasts, and I thought, you all these people ate a lot. And when they did eat, they came together in mass. And it must have been just like this huge barbecue. Because all these, these priests seem like butchers. They're just slaughtering animals. must have been this massive braai. But what actually is, or what, how can we understand today these feasts that we read about in the Old Testament? 
Now, most all nations, I think, have their own version or their own idea of these feasts. Now, in South Africa, for us as a, as a secular nation, we also have our own idea of feasts in inverted commas. We have New Year's Day on January 1st. We have the 21st of March, which is Human Rights Day. It was the day that we remember our South African Human Rights Council being launched in 1996. And we also, on the 21st of March, which is coming up, remember what happened in 1960 with the Sharpeville Massacre, where people were shot and killed for um, demonstrating against the pass laws. And then we have Easter, which is coming up in April. We also have Freedom Day, where we remember our very first democratic elections. I can recall that day. First of May is Workers' Day. Then we have Youth Day, which reminds us of the protests of 1976. On the 9th of August, we celebrate National Women's Day, which is a day, in fact, that reminds us of something that happened in 1956 when women participated in a national march also to petition against pass laws. On the 24th of September, we have Heritage Day, a day when we celebrate the myriad of cultures that we have in our country. And then we have our Day of Reconciliation. And then, of course, we have Christmas as well. Now, what the commemoration of these celebrations, these in inverted commas to help us understand this idea, what these feasts accomplish for us is that they remind us of the events that have come to define us as a nation. It reminds us of the things that we ought to uphold. It reminds us of the things that we must value because we need to learn from the past. Because the past affects our actions and our decisions today. Now the feast that the Israelites upheld did a similar thing for them, but more. And it was God himself who commanded them to observe these celebrations. He told them to observe these feasts. And the whole of Leviticus chapter 23 reminds us of this. We'll read just a few lines from it. Um, from verse 2, it says, God says to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed feasts, the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. These are the Lord's appointed feasts, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at the appointed times. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. On the 15th day of that month, the Lord's Feast of Unleavened Bread begins. For seven days you must eat bread made without yeast. 
on the first day hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work for seven days present a food offering to the Lord and on the seventh day hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work now when we hear this word feasts being used here as I mentioned earlier we think of an elaborate meal or a banquet And we tend to associate, I think, this word only with food. But when we read this and when we work with this word in our minds in Scripture, I think that there is a lot more attached to it than an opportunity to eat. Yahweh stated that these are His feasts. And they are special holy assemblies that are established by God when the Jewish people would come together to meet with him in a special way. And these feasts are these special religious gatherings that often contained a ceremonial meal but were not exclusively about food. But we do see the valuable role that food plays in them. Now, there were seven feasts throughout the year. Our year in South Africa, we've got a list, as we saw there, of these holy days, these holidays that we celebrate. Now, in Israel, they have as well a list of these holy days as we just saw. Now, the Israelites don't follow a calendar like ours. So they don't have a January, February, March, April, all the way through to December. They follow a lunar calendar. We, our calendar, follows the sun, so we have a solar calendar, the Gregorian calendar. They follow the phases of the moon, as they were instructed to by the Torah in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 14. So, the list of the months are Nisan, Eyar, Sivan, Tamutz, Av, Elul, Tishrei, Heshvan, Kislev, Tevet, Shevat, Adar. And for them, this, the start of the year is in March, in our March and our April. So that coincides with the start of the year. Now, there's a rhythm that is when you look at it there you can see where our um, the black is our calendar and the on the outside there is how it coincides with our calendar so you can see there the first month of the year is nisan and nisan coincides with our march and our april now this calendar actually has a kind of a rhythm to it Um, And it reminds the Jewish people of these appointed times of the Lord. And their calendar actually revolves around the agricultural cycles of their land. So there are times to sow, there are times to reap and harvest. And the year begins in spring. Our year starts in summer, in January, but their year starts in spring, which for them is a revival of growth. Things are starting afresh, Um, the, the fields are green, things are starting to grow, and so that signals for them the start of their year. And so it also signals for them times of rest, 
times of remembrance, times that force them to look back into their history at what Yahweh had done for them, and times that also help them to point their directions towards the future. Within the calendar there, I've, on the outside of the calendar, I've listed the, the feasts. So very quickly, the Passover feast commemorates Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. We can remember the story of how all of the Egyptians had to slaughter a lamb and apply the blood to their doorpost. And that night, the angel of the Lord came over Egypt and anyone who did not have that blood applied to their doorpost, their firstborns would die on that evening. So that feast reminds them of that and it reminds them of their deliverance from slavery. Then there's the, the feast of unleavened bread. So Passover happens on the 14th of Nisan for them and the very next day the next one starts and that's the feast of unleavened bread. And on this day they weren't allowed to do any work and they were only allowed to eat bread that doesn't have yeast in it. That's unleavened bread. Also helping to remind them about how quickly they needed to flee Egypt. There wasn't time to put yeast in your bread. You had to move quickly. So they ate flat bread. And then after that, there's also still in that season, probably towards the end of the month, there's the Feast of First Fruits that relates to when they were in the Promised Land. And what would happen with that particular holiday feast is that they would bring all of the very first fruits, the very first growth from their harvest, they were to bring to the priest, and the priest would wave this in front of the temple. And this would dedicate the coming of the harvest as a blessing from God. And then there's Pentecost, Pentecost, um, happens 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits, and it recognizes the Lord as the provider of everything that they need. It also interestingly reminds them about God's desire for them to be generous. So they are celebrating, and while, they are hap while that's happening, God reminds them in chapter 22 of Leviticus that while you are harvesting your harvest, if anything falls out of your hand, leave it there. Also, don't harvest or pick anything right up to the boundary of your field. Leave that for the poor. And so he reminds them as well that they need to be aware of those who are less fortunate than them. After that, there's the Feast of Trumpets, which um, marks the end of the agricultural year and the start of the next. And it also very importantly reminds them, because they'd be blowing a trumpet, it would remind them to start preparing themselves for their most sacred holiday, holy day of the year. And that would be the Day of Atonement, which was coming up shortly after that. And on this Day of Atonement, which was the next one, the priest would enter the Holy of Holies after cleansing himself, having made a sacrifice. He would take two goats with him, 
and the one goat would be killed and that one goat's blood would cover the sins of all the people. And then the, the priest would take the other goat, which was called the Azazel goat, um, the scapegoat, and he would put his hands on that goat's head and that goat would then be led by some, by another one of the priests, out into the wilderness to demonstrate how the sins of the people were being separated from them. But we can see in that also an incomplete picture, because I wonder what would happen if the goat came back. <laughs> and after that, there would be the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a week-long feast, seven days. We can remember just before our Christmas, we sent out this, these devotions that revolved around that particular feast, where people would make these little booths, like a kind of a gazebo, and they would sit outside, everybody would sleep outside, and it would remind them again of Yahweh's provision for them while they were out in the desert. Now all of these feasts that are celebrated, they may seem distant to us, they may even seem irrelevant or unrelated to us right now, but they actually hold for us today very deep meaning. And they may be Old Testament and Jewish, but they find fulfillment for us in a Christian way prophetically. As we draw to a close, those first ones that are marked there with a red tick, it is understood that those feasts have already prophetically been fulfilled in the first coming of the Messiah, who is Jesus. So within those first feasts that happen up there, we see the crucifixion, we see the resurrection, and we see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15, Paul writes, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that are to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So Paul says here to these believers in Colossae, that it's not essential that they, and by extension us, that we observe these feasts, but they are, however, linked very closely to the Messiah. Now the second three of those feasts on the bottom there, it is believed will see fulfillment, they will see completion at the second coming of Jesus's, when, when Jesus does come again. Now what I find interesting about this is that there was an incredible amount of accuracy on Jesus' part with his arrival and the completion of those first three feasts right up unto the day he was on time. Now we cannot know the year of Jesus' second coming. However, this does appear to show that the second coming would be in our September or October. 
<laughs> to line up in that particular way with those feasts. The Jews also, quite interestingly, expect the Messiah around the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. I find that quite interesting. Now, as we close, what can we learn about that for us today? I think that as we think about all of this, I think whether we like it or not, we are more dependent on God than we realize. You know, there's this saying that I have often heard that um, very successful people sometimes use. They say, I'm a self-made man. Have you ever heard that saying before? I tend to differ with the reasoning behind that. Because I don't think that anybody is able to do it all by themselves. There's always people that you need in your life. No one is able to do it all alone. We all rely on others around us. So that's the first thing. And secondly, I think when we look at Israel and we see how the feasts helped them to look back on the things that Yahweh did for them in the past, which would give them meaning for their present time. It would allow them and enable them to make decisions in their present time. This also helped them to look prophetically into the future. And so I think there's a lesson for us to learn from that. And then thirdly and finally, I don't think we should underestimate what having a meal with someone or others could turn into. I wonder what would have happened if the Israelites stopped celebrating all of those feasts because they seemed mundane or they seemed like they were unrelated to their lives. I wonder to what extent it would have affected them as a nation. So as we continue to think about this and as we continue to prayerfully go into this week, I hope that you found some kind of encouragement in that. Or that it, it made you think about some of the things that we think are mundane in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the significance of something as mundane as just having a meal. We thank you that even within something as mundane as that, we can find deep meaning. We thank you, Lord, that you yourself have established yourself as the bread of life. We thank you that you yourself are the living waters in Jesus. And so we thank you, Lord, that we can today, even as we reflect on those feasts that happened thousands of years ago, that today still we can find meaning in it. And so as we enter into this week, tomorrow evening, as we come together to come before you again, we ask, Lord, that you would continue to minister to us. Continue to remind us of the significance of your presence and your provision for us as we enter into this new season. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.